hello. Your QL fandom uncle and auntie are here with giant sunglasses, brown liquor in a flask, a folded $5 bill to slip into your hand when nobody's looking, lukewarm takes, occasional rides on the discourse, deep dives into artistry and industry, and most importantly, simping. Lots of simping. I'm Ben. I'm Nini. And this is The Conversation. About once a season, we plan to swan in and shoot the shit on faves, flops, and trends that we've been noticing in the BL, GL, or QL industry. Between seasons, you can find us typing way too many words on Tumblr. and welcome back to the conversation today we are at part two of the vibe awards 2022 and that is the very important internet bl awards ben how do you feel tonight how are we how are we doing i know you're gone off the cold meds but i am riding high on various cold meds and hoping that it holds out for the next hour and a half still we ball Tonight's episode is all about things behind the scenes, so all of the technical awards and our deep dive into the industry. We're going to start giving out our technical awards with the best OST song. I enjoy music in film and TV. I enjoy the way that it's used, and particularly when it comes to something like a theme song or an OST song. I was actually really looking forward to this particular conversation. Nini has the ability to hear perfect pitch. And bad music is severely more affecting for her than it is for many of us. And I'm usually amused by her visceral reactions to good and bad music. Basically, good music, I'm ascending. Bad music, it's physically painful for me. I can hear quarter tones, which is about as close to perfect pitch as you can get. And so I can hear when somebody is a smidge flat or a smidge sharp, and it's physically painful for me. So music, if I'm going to listen to it, it has to be good. So the songs that we picked on here are all quite good some better than others, none physically painful, thank God. So the first song I chose was Free Fall from Ken Porsche by Slum Machine. I love a good rock song. I love to just bang my head and just get it all out. And Free Fall is not what I expected when I first started watching Ken Porsche. I didn't expect that to be the theme song. And then as we got deeper and deeper into the show, it made more and more sense to me as the theme song. And then by the end, I'm just headbanging along and singing the lyrics in Thai, which is a language I do not know. It's a great little song. And Slot Machine, really incredible performers. The way the song is composed is excellent. I like deep orchestration in my music. And Slot Machine uses actual instruments. A lot of what you get now is made by electronic instruments or cooked up in a studio. Slot Machine uses actual instruments to record. It's a really enjoyable song. My second choice was our song from Bad Buddy. Now, forget everything I just said about Slot Machine. Because (laughs) this song is exactly the opposite. There is a lot of production trickery behind our song, especially when it comes to Nanon's voice, because the song is pitched so high, it's a little bit out of his range. But 
it's just so upbeat and happy and I love upbeat happy love songs because so many love songs that you get are these really melodramatic bombastic over-the-top ballads our song feels like how love is supposed to feel it feels happy and excited aside from the way that the song is written by amp acharya and the way that it's performed by nanon one of the things i love most about our song is the way that it's used in the story for bad buddy so we hear it as a theme song from the beginning we hear pran throughout the story humming it and noodling with it this is the song that he's supposed to be writing he can't get it down and then at the end of the series in episode 11 which the way bad buddy is constructed is so fabulous because episode 11 is actually the finale episode 12 is a special but i digress at the end of the story we finally get to hear him sing the song he can finally finish the song and we get to hear him sing it and it means so much and he sings it for pat and pat is crying and so what the song represents and how it is used within bad buddy is one of the reasons that i really really love it as well as the fact that it's just a bop what about you ben what were your choices i'm just thinking first about the fact that when you mentioned pat crying because of the way they filmed that particular sequence nanon and ohm couldn't see each other Mm -hmm. and independently on their own they both broke down without reacting to each other really says i also just think it's funny that you the resident i told sunset about you simp oh we don't need a love song that's bombast that's bombastic and operatic and i'm like okay but my favorite, my favorite <laughs> Idol Sunset About You song is not the bombastic and operatic one. It's the Torch song. Oh, mm-hmm. that actually makes sense for you. As for what I yes. want out of the soundtrack, yes. I yes. do not have perfect pitch like Nini. I was not blessed <laughs> or cursed, depending on how you want to look at it. Sometimes it feels like a curse. <laughs> I added two songs to our list. I added Slow Motion from About Youth, and I added Rainbow Prince from Rainbow Prince. I like when a show's song resonates deeply emotionally with the show itself and has an intimate part with the work itself. So Rainbow Prince is a musical and a very silly one. Very silly, very fun show. But the Rainbow Prince song in particular is absolutely joyous about being in love with someone. And I legitimately said this to some friends of ours, that when I get married, it is one of the songs that will definitely be played at my reception for the fun of the BL fans exclusively. Are there going to be drag queens at your reception? Please say yes. I've been covered in so much glitter in my life. They better be there. It's a really, really fun song. And I really like the way that they use it at the very end of the show. In in a show that is really punching well above its weight. It really encapsulates everything that that whole show is reaching for. And I feel so fond for it. As for Slow Motion and About Youth, there is a tonality to that song that resonates very gently in your chest when you're listening to it. And it almost feels like a gentle hug. And I find that to really encapsulate how the whole show feels. It is truly one of the sweetest shows we got 
all of last year. It's just so sweet. And Slow Motion is such an endearing song that carries a lot of universality about love in it and is used particularly well from within the plot of the show towards the back half. I'm going to spoil the show. Sorry for those of you listening. Including um, me, because I haven't seen it. This has been trying to get me to watch more Taiwanese BL. You need to. The character who of the main pair, who is the, the singer, the song belonged to his dad. And he chooses to use it for the benefit of his partner towards the end. And the two of them end up singing it together in a way that is incredibly endearing. And I absolutely adore the show for that. In the end, uh, the winner of the 2022 Vibe Award for Best OST Song is our song from Bad Buddy, performed by Nanon Korapat, music and lyrics by Amp Acharya. I just love it. It makes me happy when I listen to it. It makes me think about Pat and Pran and everything that they've been through. It's bubbles and fun and hope and youth and growing up together and growing apart and coming back together and just loving each other through it all. It feels like them. And I really like it because the song feels in so many ways like an answer to Skyline because Skyline is such a heavy song. It's operatic. It sings Mm -hmm. about a love that's bigger than the people who can physically contain it. And Mm -hmm. our song is saying, is it okay if I can't match that? Is it okay for us to just be good enough to each other? I think that's such a wonderful response in the year following the impact of It's A and I Promise You the Moon on the entire Southeast Asian BL adjacent world. Mm. I feel like that's such an incredible way to respond to like the quintessential youth-fated romance story. The reveal that the intro song was the song that Pran was working on is one of the greatest cinematic reveals that the genre has done for us in a really long time. For all that we joke about Thai music, Thai music and Thai BL relying on a lot of singing and how it feels very like Disney-esque to try to monetize the production beyond the scope of when it ran by getting residuals on people streaming the music. When it's done well, it's good. And you can go, this is why we do it. People love this stuff. And our song is a great example of it done well. It's fun. It's just a fun bop. It's lovely. It makes you smile. There are very few BL boys who are allowed to sing to me. Oh, should we listen? Very few. There's (laughs) Bilkin. Mm -hmm. PP's allowed now. Jeff Sator. Upgrade for people. Yeah. Ninu Chaorin. Fourth, not a what. And Nanon. Let's move on. So Let's the move next. on to keep discussing music. <laughs> best, <laughs> best music of 2022. This award is awarded for the music and the totality of the show. So OST music, score music, the way that music is used throughout the show, as opposed to the OST song, which is this one particular song. In terms of my nominees, I nominated the same two shows for Best Music. I nominated Ken Porsche, and the composer is Toy Turdsak, Jan Pan. And I nominated Bad Buddy, with the composer being Amp Acharya. 
I like the way that music is utilized in Ken Porsche. A lot of the moments that I think about when I remember Ken Porsche, the moments that have stayed with me, the music is woven through those moments in such a way it's integrated together in my mind. So I can't think of the moment without thinking about the music. Ken and Porsche's first kiss out on by the water, out on the dock. When we first hear Jeff singing, Why Don't You Stay? Then in episode four, their ill-fated assignation in the hotel room, the use of the particular version of Freefall that was used in there, haunting. And one of the reasons I love that is because people said because of the version that they used that the moment was meant to be romantic, but I didn't get that at all from that music. It was slightly disturbing. The way that the music was sort of slowed down and filtered through, like there was a little bit of distortion behind there. It felt unsettling, beautiful, but unsettling. And I really like that because it underscores that the moment is not quite what it should be. And the other moment I think of, these are, it's so strange, these are all of their their intimate moments because they really use music well in their intimate moments. Episode seven, when they're in the bathroom, when they have the fight and they make up, that is the romantic music. The way that the piano is used, the composition that is used here, I can't remember the name of the song now. It's apologetic because Ken is apologetic. It's forgiving because Porsche is forgiving. It is a very emotional piece of music. It made me feel a lot of things. That's just some examples of the way that music was woven through Ken Porsche and I really enjoyed. And that's why it was on my list. The other show on my list for music was Bad Buddy. And again, because of the way that music was woven through the whole of episode five, the music was a banger, an absolute banger. Pat's realization in the music store of how he felt about Pran, the music that was underscoring that, the music that underscored their confrontation on the roof when they kissed, and the way that the guitar and drums played off of each other in the moment, depending on who was taking the lead in a particular moment. When Pat kisses Pran, the drums come in really heavy. And when Pran kisses Pat, the guitar really takes over. And those are the instruments that they play in the show. So I like that. I thought it was really clever. And then in episode six, when they are on the beach after they have fought and made up and they're playing in the water and Pat is asking Pran if he hates him. Pran is saying, I was angry. I could never hate you. The music in that scene. Beautiful. Soy, I think is the word <laughs> in Thai. <laughs> yes. I think... What stands out for me with how well some of the music was used in Bad Buddy, that when the same song from the roof kiss in episode five is used in Big Dragon, I think episode six, the fans called it out as the same song and how much less impactful it felt being used in the scene that they chose to use it for. And I think that really highlights how effectively the Music was used in Bad Buddy. I included Rainbow Prince and Game Boys on my list for this especially. Because I'm just very partial to Filipino music. I don't know what exactly it is about it, but every time I watch a show from the Philippines, I am always looking forward to the songs that they're going to use. 
I didn't even include some of the other ones I wanted to do on here, but I especially liked the commitment to the musical in Rainbow Prince. Like I didn't want to list all the composers here because there's so many of them for Rainbow Prince because there's about 15 songs, I think, in the show. And it's just so much fun, like especially the songs that are bad. And I mean that with my whole heart. I had some very visceral negative reactions to some of the songs. <laughs> and that's part of the fun of a musical for me, that I'm always going to hate one or two songs in a musical. I watched the first episode of Rainbow Prince because I am determined to get through it because I do love musicals, especially when they're silly. There was a Disney quality to the songs and the way that they were utilized. The first song in the show is Reality Versus Expectations, which Mikey sings. Yeah, Yerwin Genazara. Yerwin, yes, uh, that he sings. And it just reminded me of Snow White being dressed by little birds. <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> that's the thing that came that's into the, my no, that's head. That's what they're going for. Yes, exactly. Like, I like the recommendation. Like, who is Rainbow Prince for? BL fans who are still not over their Disney era. And then the other song in that episode, Heling, I really, I really, really like Heling. That. That's such a great song to include in the first episode. It was and beautiful. Erwin does a good job because that song requires some pretty decent lung capacity to sing appropriately. Erwin is a good singer. I did not notice any breath control issues. His tone and timbre nice. He was on key. Thank you. And... <laughs> There it is. So best music vibe award for 2022 goes to Ken Bosch. In the end, we agreed it was the best weaving of the score and soundtrack music into the production of the show. It was not a long discussion for us at all. No, it was not. We went back and forth a little bit between Ken Bosch and Bad Buddy, but in the end, that episode seven bathroom scene, y'all want it for me it is it is really iconic and that's one of the things we're gonna probably be talking about i think for at least another two years about ken porsche mm. when we were discussing these awards we had to separate music and songs out because we needed to highlight individual songs from the soundtrack used well versus music itself being used well so on to our next award which is best production ben you wanna... all right so let's talk about production production is all-encompassing and it's really about basically the non-acting parts of any piece of media that you're going to enjoy it's all of the things that are invisible unless you're paying attention to them good production doesn't feel like production because everything looks the way it's supposed to it sounds like it's supposed to and it feels like it's supposed to when you're experiencing it and so this is going to be set design, costuming, music, direction, etc. Basically, all of the world building, everything yeah. that builds the world around the characters is production. So we had five that we highlighted for this. I'm going to read their names off before we get into why we selected them. Ken Porsche, You're My Sky. I know that's going to surprise some of you. Vice Versa. Kabe Koji Nakayoshiki Kun Desires to be Recognized. And Rainbow Prince. I have a lot to say in this category. So do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Okay, I will go first because I want you to have free reign. So I chose 
Ken Porsche and You're My Sky. I chose You're My Sky because the thing that really stood out about that show was the production. The way that it was colored, the sets, the art direction, some of the costuming. It was an incredible show to look at. It felt like a real place in which these characters were just living their lives. The world that they built around these characters, truly impressive. I loved looking at the show. It was a treat for the eyes, and that's why it made my shortlist. Kin Porsche, if you want to know why Kin Porsche made my shortlist, go and look at episode seven. Look at the sequence. It's a series of tracking shots where Porsche enters Vegas's house. That sequence, everything about entering the minor family compound, how you get into the compound, where you have to pass through, the way that the scenery changes as you pass through the path to get finally into the inner sanctum, the way that the inner sanctum looks, the people that you meet along the way, what they're wearing, what they're doing. It is soaked in a vibe. Everything about the way that Ken Porsche looks, the world that it has built is a vibe. The major family compound is a particular kind of vibe. The minor family compound is a particular kind of vibe. That whole cartel meets triad aesthetic, whereas the major family is very Cosa Nostra. Production for me is a feast for the eyes and ears. And that's what I got out of Ken Porsche. So those were my two nominees. Ben? Okay. So I only voted when we had to do our limited nominations for Vice Versa, You're My Sky, and Ken Porsche. I've already spoken about Rainbow Prince and my pure adoration for the gumption of this show. And I'm not going to say much more about it. For Kabe Koji, I wanted to highlight this particular show because Japan has a very particular way in which they film things. I think it's almost, it's very easy when you're, if I showed you a couple of stills from a show, whether you recognize Japanese architecture or Japanese faces, you would probably recognize Japanese framing. And most of the BLs do stick to the very traditional Japanese style of filming. This is not a negative. It's just noteworthy. Kabe Koji leans much harder into a manga-esque framing as part of its genuine desire to parody everything that it's talking about in it. And you can feel that right away. If I showed you just a quick scroll of all the Japanese shows in BL of the last year, Kabe Koji would stand out because it visually looks distinct from everything else that aired. And I really wanted to highlight that in this particular section. And so with Vice Versa, I did not like this show. Full transparency. I found the character that Jimmy is playing to be absolutely frustrating and a little insufferable. However, this show was gorgeous. You could feel GMMTV responding to years of us dogging them about over-brightening their shows and whitening their shows and complaining that Thailand and its people are some of the most beautiful in the world and they should lean into that more instead of trying to wash it out and match the Chinese style of desaturating everything 
and you could feel them going, all right, we heard you and vice versa and playing around with color and its actual impacts on film and how the color palette you place over an episode impacts the emotional response you're getting from that episode. It's an incredibly clever production in that regard. I didn't I it, so. also wanted to highlight You're My Sky because I think we have to acknowledge the fact that it is in so many ways the first post-Itse show that came out of the BL pulps because you can feel them reaching for a tighter cinematic style. You can see that they were being more experimental about the types of shots they use, about the ways they allow the actors to move around. And there's some actually genuinely clever filmmaking that goes on with the basketball sequences. There's a narrowing of the frame where the black space in the widescreen format is a lot bigger than normal as they're tightening the focus on what's going on in various moments. And the way they use a school setting, we've seen the building that they filmed that school in countless times in BL. And they made that school setting feel fresh and distinct in a way that it really hasn't in a long time. And they just really properly captured what I think a sports romance show should look and feel like. And for all the things that that show isn't, it was incredibly beautiful to watch the whole time. As for Ken Porsche, I think we won't really understand how actually good Ken Porsche was from a production standpoint until 2024. It's going to take a full year of people scrambling to catch up to them for us to really benefit from it. But some of the shows we're seeing now that I think are a byproduct of what Nadal was doing for years, but most importantly with I Tell Sunset About You and I Promise You the Moon, I don't think the rest of the industry is going to really be able to catch up to what Kim Porsche did for a solid year and a half. As you already explained, there's a visceral quality to Kim Porsche that very few BLs ever really capture, I think, outside of Japan. Because I think Korea has mastered what the fictional version of Korea looks like, and the BLs can benefit from that. But it's very rare that I watch even a, a genuine Korean show that doesn't feel like something recycled from another K-drama. And Ken Porsche felt Thai in a way that I think really only it's a captured. And they somehow managed to do that inside of Bangkok with the limited tools that they had at their disposal as well. I loved everything about the way they used the hotel they stayed in, the minor yes. family's compound, the streets, Yuck's bar, even Porsche's house, which is one of the normal BL houses. Even that house felt fresh because of the angles they chose to use to film it. Uh, that show. I like what you said about there being a tininess to Ken Porsche's production style, because I think that's one of the things that is coming out of the impact of I Told Sunset About You, which is the discarding almost of this idea of an anonymous anywhereville and productions really leaning into a Thai cultural aesthetic. We've seen a lot of this, even in the lower budget productions. I saw some of the work on Big Dragon and there's a specificity there. So while some of the pulps in the college stores are still using that desaturated, whitewashed, modern, anonymous, anywhere-ville kind of style, 
there is a direction towards leaning into a Thai cultural aesthetic, whether it's a Thai Chinese aesthetic, which is a lot of what we're getting coming out of I Told Sunset About You. And we we're seeing that in things that are airing now, like Never Let Me Go, some of the lacorns that we're seeing as well, because this isn't just happening in BL. This is happening across Thai cinema. This is happening across Thai TV, because I think to serve with love, some of the stuff that I've seen coming out of that, even something like the warp effect, because the warp effect is set in a Catholic school. And if you know anything about Thailand, there are not that many Catholic schools. We haven't gone back there yet. Well, we're going back there next episode. But that Christian aesthetic is not something that you usually get in Thai dramas, but it's does exist in thailand it's a particular subset of the country and we're getting to see like a little bit into that through really the fascinating. production i hadn't really design. thought about that too much more than the fact that catholicism and christianity in general tend to inflict a lot of these sort of prescriptions that are generating some of the plot troubles yeah and in, in this one it affects the costuming in the high school scenes it affects some of the sets some of the art direction, some of the set design. There's a specificity being leaned into and more Thai productions that I'm seeing now because I'm actually getting broader in my watching of Thai drama. So I'm watching Thai BL, I'm watching some La Horns and there is a leaning towards a specificity of Thai-ness, whatever Thai-ness in that particular realm feels like, whether it's northern rural Thailand, as in A Tale of Thousand Stars, whether it is southern Sino-Portuguese Thailand and Phuket with I Told Sunset About You, there's that leaning into a specificity of a Thai aesthetic, whatever Thai aesthetic that is. It is so much more enjoyable. It makes everything more enticing to watch and when it's more enticing to watch even if the show itself isn't objectively good it is interesting to look at and so much of filmmaking so much of making television is about making things interesting to look at and that has been lost so much i think the most important thing about thailand really leaning into this is that it makes me stop comparing their work to Chinese or Korean works because now that it feels like they're not trying to chase a Chinese or Korean aesthetic, I can engage more directly with what the Thai filmmakers are trying to do and say with their work. And I don't feel like I'm saying, well, this was a better in say this particular K drama or this C drama. Our production award goes to Ken Porsche. The production company is Beyond Cloud and the production designer is Tana Mecca Amput. So congratulations to Ken Porsche. You have won the 2022 Vibe Award for Best Production. It is well-deserved because that show has such a distinctive look that you can pick it out in any still. Fantastic work. Especially the Minor Family. I want to get inside of Tanameka Amput's head because the Minor Family, I don't know how she did that. I don't know. That was really impressive. That That was really, really impressive. I want to talk to the costume designer because I have questions. (laughs) Are those questions related to Tankun? No, they're related to the Minor Family during the final assault. Oh, why were, to- why were these? Are the we talking about chose? the lounge lizard Larry suit and the boat outfit? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. 
it was designed for maximum disrespect. I think that's what the costuming in the I, end you know, was that had to be about. It. He came to his brother's funeral, essentially, in shorts and a jaunty neckerchief. That's maximum disrespect. And I loved it. Our <laughs> next award is for best screenplay. And surprisingly, we did not have a lot of screenplays on our list. So when I'm looking at writing in television in particular, I'm looking for three things. I'm looking for the story. That's one element of the writing. I'm looking for the dialogue. That's another element of the writing. And I'm looking for how the language that is used fits the characters, how it fits the story, how it fits the aesthetic of the piece, how it fits into the production. The cadence, I guess, is the best way I can describe it of the script. So we only ended up with three nominees for this. We nominated Madhu Chukiatsak Viracle for Triage. We nominated Jason for Semantic Error. And we nominated the Bad Buddy writing team of B. Pongsit Luxemi Pong, Prachaya Tavorn Tumarat, and Best Kitisak Konka, who writes under the name Nine Pinto. Now, I wanted to get everybody's name in here because too often below no, the line crew. We, need to, we do need to highlight yes. the fact that that was a, a team, not just a yes. person. It's not just a team, but also I always want to talk about the behind the scenes people because they don't get as much attention as the actors and directors. And I think that they contribute so heavily to what we're watching on screen. I want their names to be known. I always watch credits because I always want to give that respect to the crew. So I only had one nominee on this list. So I will let Ben go first. Okay. So I had a fourth nominee I didn't put on the list, and it was Eternal Yesterday. And the only reason I didn't include it is it's so difficult to get the information about who was involved in the Japanese production because that information is not normally translated. And also, Japanese productions don't typically get highly nuanced subtitling for them. And so some of the things that I am losing my mind over in a Japanese production have to do with things I've picked up from just being a kid who watched anime on Toonami growing up and then continue to engage with Japanese cinema. Toonami. I know. I know. <laughs> Taking me back. I'm taking you back, but some of the kids are like, what's Toonami? And so, <laughs> and so I didn't include any of the Japanese productions on here because it's hard to get the information from them. And it's hard, I think, for the audience to appreciate them properly. But I would have included Eternal Yesterday in this conversation because I believe that Eternal Yesterday may be one of the gentlest and kindest explorations of queer grief that I have ever experienced in cinema. And I say this for a show that literally kills one of its leads in the description of the show and at the end of the first episode. So I went into that show with my eyes open about what I was going to be part of. And it ends up just being one of the most transformative experiences I've had in the genre in a long time. And so much of that has to do with the way 
that particular piece was written because you have to account for the pacing over eight weeks of about 25 minute episodes as you unpack the realities of this. Ben has been making a determined pitch for me to watch Eternal yesterday, and I think he's watch it, y'all. She's got to watch it. And so I wanted to highlight triage on here because it's from the same team that gave us Manner of Death. And I really had so much fun with Manner of Death. And I really had so much fun with triage as well. Triage takes the time loop Groundhog Day concept and kind of blows it up a little bit by fiddling with the mechanics to enable someone who is an ER doctor who's gotten a bit jaded to the detriment of his patient's care. And really turns that around and forces him to reconnect with his own humanity and his own love. It's really such a fascinating show. Tanama's in it. If there's another recommendation for you. It's really hard to properly explain why I was so compelled by it. But it's very difficult, I think, for the Tybiels in general to take a sci-fi concept and really properly commit to it. Because I feel like they often get lost in the weeds of the mechanic and they don't focus on the emotional core of it. And it's the rare exemption to that where they understood the goal of their time traveling bit and used it to great effect, particularly when they inverted it towards the end. Truly something special. It is really just an incredible piece in this regard. And then I also acknowledged Bad Buddy because we're starting to see the payoff from Bad Buddy now with my school president but the team that assembled bad buddy created a milestone moment in what gmm tv's rom-com bls are going to look like going forward because we had sodas first and then you had a soft reboot of the format with together which felt accidental and then you could see them really hammering something together with Bad Buddy, and they put together a blueprint, and you can feel it in the shows that follow. You can feel some of that blueprint in Enchante, and you can feel it in My School President with some of the pacing of how things are going to fall out. And Bad Buddy is one of the rare Thai shows where we can refer to individual episodes and talk about the significance of them therein. And for me, when it comes to television, This is the true distinguishing factor. Mini rant incoming. (laughs) The Netflix-oriented binge model of television consumption is, I think, inherently bad for television as an episodic format. I think the fact that you want people to come back to the show week in and week out requires you to think about each episode as a movement in an ongoing story and not just one long-ass movie that we hope people stick around for. And when you can feel this in Bad Buddy with the way fans over a year later will still talk about, oh man, the kiss in Bad Buddy 5, the fight in Bad Buddy 5, the beach sequence in Bad Buddy 6, the flirting arc in Bad Buddy 7, the fleeing to the beach in Bad Buddy 11, or all of the consternation about Bad Buddy 12. And it's the fact that we can refer to these individual episodes and about how they impacted people, or you can remind people which episode Pat got shot in. (laughs) Episode 9. See? Pat got shot in episode 9. And so the specifics with which the audience continues to recall 
when things occurred in Bad Buddy, I think really highlights how truly special that particular script was because I watched over 90 shows this year and like over like 80 movies when I was doing my accounting and I can still recall these moments. And then for the people who engage somewhere between Nini's 15 shows and my 90 plus shows, they can still recall those moments. And I think that truly speaks to how special the blueprint that was being developed on, on Bad Buddy really was. So you've touched on some interesting points in there, and I agree with all of them, and I want to pull some of them out in particular. One of the things that I have noted about Bad Buddy is how it feels like a video game, almost. And what I mean by that is that you've got your main overarching story with your last boss. You've got all these side quests and mini bosses in between, which are various arcs and specific episodes. And the level of difficulty as you go through the story increases, but it also becomes easier to play the game because you understand it now. And that's the way that I feel about how Bad Buddy is constructed as a story. And story construction is writing. And the way that I feel about how Bad Buddy was constructed, I've, I've talked before as well about how it feels like two smaller series within a series. So there's the first series of Bad Buddy, which is their freshman year arc, which ends with the kiss and then their special episode of episode six. And then it feels like with episode seven, they start a completely new series of Bad Buddy that goes to episode 11. And then episode 12, again, feels like a special episode. So just the way that it's constructed in individual episodes, the way that it's constructed in arcs, the way that it is constructed with the characters' independent objectives as they go through the story and how the story impacts their objectives as well because it's not just that they start with objectives at the beginning of the story and those objectives never change as they're influenced by things happening in the story their objectives change but their super objective remains the same again very clever story writing one of the other things that i have noted about bad buddy is that it is written by a writer's room a writer's room is extremely important to television writing because of the episodic nature of television. If you have a single writer, a singular writer writing television, it is best if they're writing a miniseries of some kind or something that is very tight. From the time you start to get into something that's very tight, very serialized, maybe you can get one writer. But if you're talking about something like Bad Buddy, which is constructed in individual episodes and arcs, you need a writer's room because you need people to bounce ideas off of each other to get the best ideas out of the room. You need people to poke holes in what you're doing with your plotting. You need people to stand and look at the storyboards with you and say, no, this doesn't work here maybe if we shift it to here or this doesn't work there maybe we shift it to there we also tend to have larger casts in television and that yes it usually helps to get a couple of distinct voices in there because some people are going to write brats better Better. than other people some people are going to write a specific character better than others the other thing about the writing in bad buddy is that this writer's room is supervised by alf who is the director. But Alf is a director who comes to directing from screenwriting. He was a screenwriter mm-hmm. first. So his sense of characterization, and you see it 
very clearly in the work that he's done. You see it in He's Coming to Me. You see it in A Tale of Thousand Stars. His sense of character and writing story around character as opposed to writing character within story is phenomenal. I think we should highlight that again while you're talking about it. Because Alf is the rare Thai director who is able to allow his cast to improvise. One of the constant complaints I had early on when I was getting into Thai BL was how stiff the blocking is. Like You can tell that everyone is inexperienced because no one is allowed to move around. And there's constant cuts because the takes are almost always half good. Mm -hmm. Off trusts his actors with the characters. Like the... Is that episode, is it episode eight or is it episode 10 when Pran rushes home because Pat's having a bad time and they have that cute moment across the way in the windows? Yes, episode eight. That sequence was basically improvised by Nenon and Ohm. They were given specific direction that Pran runs home to comfort Pat and they're going to play across they were given a couple of starting points to work with but reportedly nanon and ohm just improvised that sequence after the first take and it was basically everything they improvised and made it into the final cut because that's how good often his team is about developing the characters and then handing them to talented actors character development on that level to hand an actor a fully realized character and then let them infuse their own essence with that is also good writing. This particular team, all the shows that you talked about when you were initially talking about the way that rom-coms have been coming through GMMTV lately, which are together, I will add to this theory of love, although I hate theory of love. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not their podcast. <laughs> She is not a Jenny Rain fan, so we probably won't talk about her work on this show. No. Yeah, those, so the writers on this have worked um, on Shantae. Again, the writers on Bad Buddy worked on all those shows. One or two of them worked on each of those shows. In fact, Nine Binta, Best Kittisak, is actually the original writer of the Enchanté novel. So that makes a that, lot of sense. That fizziness in the dialogue, mm-hmm. which I really enjoyed, is something that they've been building up through multiple shows. One thing I can't complain about in Theory of Love, and there's a lot that I can complain about, one thing I can't complain about is the fizziness of the dialogue. Theory of Love is sharply written in the dialogue. It is very it enjoyable. Is. It is very enjoyable dialogue. As to a high to, even if you around. don't speak Thai. As a high-concept rom-com, reflecting on the nature of the rom-com and how it alters people's perspectives on love itself, I think it captures that really well. Even if I'm not that keen on Kai and Third and all of the extra couples they shoved into that, I really liked the core thinking around the role of the rom-com. I feel like a bunch of people on Theory of Love ended up on Vice Versa, and I could feel the exact same... Yes, they did. The, <laughs> These same writers. The exact same sort of meditation on film and genre going on in that. And I'm just like, can you guys just do this in a clean concept? Do we always have to take it to some high... Anyway, I'm going to talk a little bit about Jason from Semantic Error, because I feel like one of the 
key takeaways about the script writing for Semantic Error, it plays into what happened with Light on Me and what's happening currently in the new MCU, is that Watcha knows exactly what they want to make. The writing for Semantic Error is so crisp. It's eerily perfect. Not a single moment of that show is wasted or feels extraneous. And it doesn't feel like there was a lot of improvising that went on with some of it. Even though we know that uh, Jay Chan and Seoham did some improvising of their own in there and elevated some of the sequences above what was originally written. So much of that feels like that's exactly how they intended that to be. And that is incredibly impressive. And it's really the biggest takeaway for me about the high quality productions coming out of Korea is that when they do know what they want to do, it is really impressive and laser focused. With all that said, the winner of best screenplay, Nini. Is Bad Buddy. And to yeah. me, it wasn't even a question. It was the only one that I nominated because I did enjoy Semantic Error. I did enjoy some of the writing in that. I thought it was very sharp. The reversal of the junior-senior dynamic in the bar when Sangwoo actually kisses really Jae-chan. really a standout scene. And that's that playing with linguistics that I love, that reversal there. It's not only playing with linguistics, it's also playing with a specific Korean cultural element that is modern and of the moment. So I did enjoy the writing for Semantic Era, but in the end, Bad Buddy was it for me. It was the best written thing that I watched in 2022, and it wins the award. So congratulations to B, Pong City, Prachaya, and best Kitasak, aka Nine Pinta, for Bad Buddy. Yeah, really outstanding work there. I think Bad Buddy is going to become a high watermark and also a stepstone point for GMMTV rom coms going forward, but I think it's also going to percolate throughout the industry. I agree. Our final technical award to distribute is Best Direction. Ben? It's like the inverse problem we had with Sideship last time. So when we got to Sideship last time, we had absolutely no agreement. But I also immediately understood why we didn't agree. I'm like, okay, I can kind of see why she chose these things. And it's just because she's valuing Sideships on a completely different metric from us. We have the inverse problem with Best Direction. We had 100% agreement across the board. We picked four people right away. But I think we're just going to highlight the three that we are going to need to talk about here. So we highlighted Off Napernak, Chai Wimal for Bad Buddy. We highlighted Huang Da Soul for Two My Star 2 and Blooming because she got two projects out last year. And Ivan Andrew Payawal for Game Boys 2. We both agreed that these were the three directors to talk about coming out of 2022. So I think before we get into the specifics on each of the directors and why we liked them specifically, let's talk about broadly, what was the key thing you were looking for when you were choosing best direction? I'll let you go first. So when I'm looking at direction, there are three aspects to direction the way I see it. There's the sureness of the entire 
thing that you're seeing on screen. There's the photography and cinematography, and there's the editing. So I know that those are three different things, but those really, those three people on a crew form the directing team. And the best way to describe good direction, if you if you get to the end of the episode or the movie or whatever it is, and you kind of shake yourself like, wow, is it over already? That's excellent direction. I don't know how else to explain it. I don't know. You're, you're, you are the film critic. You can use some very technical jargon, I'm sure, that I can't. Sure. So I think for me, when I'm looking for direction, I'm looking for a good economy in the way they use their shots and where they choose to use their stylistic shots for best impact. And also, sometimes it's a little bit more esoteric, which director pulls the most out of their talent? Because in many cases, when you've been in genre for a while, you've watched a lot of stuff, you've seen talent work with other people. And you can tell when they're with people that they really trust and who understand them. And so with these three particular directors, they bring a very distinctive style that I've come to recognize. Like Huang Da Sol uses entryways so effectively in all of her work. She has this incredible vision for the way entering and exiting a place impacts how you're proceeding into the next thing you're going into. And you see that in both To My Star 2 and Blooming, particularly To My Star 2 with the way all of the gates and doors are used. The way she uses doorways and even stairwells is just so compelling. With Off, Off uses a really workmanlike style of filming, but he's able to trust his talent enough that he can use enough mid shots to let them play off of each other. With Ivan Andrew Payowal for Game Boys, Ivan is really, really good at moving the camera around his cast. He uses handheld shots probably the most effectively of anybody in this particular setup and he uses them well it feels like he uses it sparingly and every time he uses it it creates this excellent framing i'm thinking about the scene in game boys 2 when gav has realized he hasn't paid one of the bills and pearl is telling them about it we end up moving with them from the front door towards the kitchen the camera's backing up as Cairo and Gav are moving together and talking back and forth, and it's really soft and it's kind of cute for them, but Adriana So ends up staying framed between Gav and Cairo, and then she gets a little bit jokingly pissed at the end of the discussion about how she's the one who actually paid the bill, so why is nobody thanking her? And that felt almost Japanese in terms of that, putting someone between two people with the framing, but it's just so elegantly executed in there. like it. It happens so smoothly that your brain doesn't even notice it as it's happening. But it's one of the shots that I think about the most when I refer back to game. These three choices are three very different styles of working. 
Ivan Andrew Paywall is very good with the handheld camera. I feel like Huang Da Soul uses a lot of dolly shots. Yeah. And and a dolly shot is where the camera is on a smooth track that you can move it back and forward. And I feel like Alf uses static camera. He sets the camera. He puts his actors in front of the camera. He lets them play it out. He moves the camera. He does another take. He doesn't do a lot of takes because he knows where he wants to position the camera. But he doesn't do a lot of camera movement in the same way that uh, Huang Da Sul or an Ivan Andrew Paywall does. And that's what, when Ben is referring to workmanlike direction, that's what it means. Because Alf's focus is less about the camera and more about his actors. He is an actor's director, and one of the reasons he's an actor's director is because he came from screenwriting. Character is everything for him. It is much more important than the actual shots that you get, because if you have good talent and they have the character, you can sort of put them in any shot and it will work. So he's less precious about his shot selection and more precious about pulling the right emotions, the right characteristics out of his actors for the camera to then capture. For Ivan Andrew Paywall, as you point out, he loves to move the camera around. I think of the, I don't know why it's always brought to me in intimate scenes, but I think of the intimate scenes in Game Boy. So the uh, scene where uh, Gav and Kai are outside on the couch watching the movie and Gav says, let's give them a show. The way that yeah, the camera moves with yeah, Kai. No, it as moves Gav above sort them of really pushes, slowly. Yes, it's so good. As Gav pushes him down onto the couch, the camera sort of moves with him. So you get that sense of leaning back along with Kai. Ivan Andrew Paywall, he has a specific vision for what he wants something to look like, but he's also willing to go with his actors, hence the handheld his actors are doing something interesting, he might abandon what he was originally thinking of and just go with them. Huang Da Su has a very specific idea of what she wants a shot to look like. Her blocking is really difficult too. The right. movements on her productions are so specific that you have to be good. You have to hit your marks or the shot's not going to work. She probably of these three directors is the one most with a cinematography bent. When it comes down to it, what we ended up choosing here was who had the least errors because I actually knocked Ivan because they don't do a great job with continuity editing. This is the thing. So when you are doing the style that Alf is using, which is set up, take, set up, take, you end up with a lot of different shots that you have to edit together. And if you're not keeping an eye on continuity, you lose something. You lose a hand in the wrong position. And it's the same when you're working with handheld. It can feel chaotic, especially if you're doing more than one take. If you're working handheld and you're doing long take scenes, it's a little less. But when you start editing things together, because the handheld style, it's so in the moment, it's so of the moment. However, the actors are playing it in that take. It might be different than the take they just did it before. So the continuity is madness unless you have somebody keeping up with it. Huang Da Sul, because of the way that she works, because of her very specific vision, her cinematographical vision, there are fewer mistakes because, no, I want this hand here. No, I want the shot to look like this. No, I want you to move in this way towards the camera, away from the camera, across the camera, that I get and this particular so sweep of movement. It's really excellent because there are some really difficult sequences that these actors have to portray 
And sometimes they have to move while doing these really difficult sequences. So and it's, she does it's a, a great it's a job of capturing it. Yeah, it's, it's really ballet. impressive. And that is why Huang De Sol is the best director five award winner for 2022 because this was the one we had to do in text because we had to pick a winner we didn't want to fight this one out for half an hour (laughs) i knew i picked out for a reason but i knew it wasn't off and ben picked ivan payawal for a reason but he knew it wasn't ivan the end we knew it was huang dasul but it's funny she actually wasn't on our initial she She wasn't wasn't on our initial list list. she was our initial list was off ivan and i think kim sujung for semantic error because it's got such a specific classic yaoi vision that that stood out to me semantic errors made from a webtoon it's not shot exactly but the vision is coming from somewhere else and then but it's like she end. kicked open the door. She's like, how dare you talk about Best Direction without <laughs> including me? We talked first about Blooming because Blooming was a feat of direction. I Just think so, yeah. watching Darren and uh, Siwon, watching them move around each other, almost dance around each other. It's this weird kind of ballet because they're dancing around each other in dialogue, but they're also physically moving around each other in a particular way that tells you that Darren is very attracted. And C1 is very scared. So you get that very clearly in the direction. And then they keep sort of circling each other and the circle's getting tighter and tighter until next thing you know it, they're sitting on that beach kissing. And it's happened so gently. It's so balletic. It's so It really is the most gentle of her work so far. It really, really is. I quite loved it. So we started off talking about Blooming. And at first it was only going to be Blooming. But then I said, well, no, we also have to look at To My Star too." I was like, we can't not talk about Huang Dasol and not her incredible use of doors in To My Star too. The door thing. I could not believe that her brain came up with that. So for those of you who have not seen To My Star 2... It sort of flips in time between the past and the present. So you see the couple separated and Sejun fighting to get back to Jiwoo because Jiwoo left him on his birthday and he's been looking for him for a year and he finally finds him. So the story cuts back and forth between the present where he's chasing Jiwoo and he finds him and they're having all these arguments and there's all this stuff going on. And the past which is their relationship as it was prior to Jiwoo leaving Sejun. And And sometimes how it will be in the future. And sometimes how it will be in the future, although that happens mostly at the end. But the way that Huang Dasul cuts between the past and the present is through the use of doorways. So when a character, when Sejun or Jiwoo goes through a doorway, suddenly you're in the past or you're in the present. So if you were in the present and you go through the doorway, now you're in the past. If you were in the past and you go through the doorway, now you're in the present. It's not just about time. It's also about their interaction. It makes it really... The 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 reason why this is so particularly significant for me, because full disclosure, I am not a happily ever after BL viewer or romance reader. For me... We are with these characters for a brief moment during an important portion of their lives, and then we say goodbye to them for now and wish them the best. Because I don't like the idea of trapping those characters in stasis, because I'm not who I was 10 years ago, and I don't want the characters to be stuck how they were when they're like 22 or like 18. 
I liked returning to To My Star in particular because I didn't think Jiwoo and Seiyu Jun were finished because there were so many hurdles that they had to overcome. Like Jiwoo was clearly self-repressed and it wasn't a homophobia thing exclusively. It was about whatever had happened to him that it was evidence with the way he responded to his friend. He was only mildly disappointed as if, of course, this is what's going to happen. And I was obsessed with this particular character or the way he sucked on Seiyujun's cut whenever he hurt himself. Or with Seiyujun himself. Don't the way he took the back way... to sucking on his lip when he hurt that. Exactly. Or the way like Seiyujun had his own trauma about like loud noises. Where did that come from? Like These guys brought a lot of baggage to their relationship that we didn't really unpack. And I'm like, that's going to cause problems. And then the second season starts and it's like, the boys have broken up. And I'm like, well, that seemed necessary. What's going to happen next? And it's difficult to make the audience believe in a show where you're going to break the couple from the first season so that they can get back together properly. And that's really well executed. I still think there's room for a third season of that show because we haven't really unpacked all of Seiyujun's character's issues. So There is a we'll big see. one hanging over them, which is Seijun's career, which they've really sort of pushed to the side in both To My Star 1 and To My Star 2. But it's going to be a problem for them because he is an actor and he is not out. That is something that they could go back to the well for a third time if they wanted to and i would watch it for sure i'm actually surprised we're getting blooming too i thought we were going to get to my start three before blooming too so we'll see next year or this year we'll I see guess. we'll see that, we'll see but yes huang da Sul, best director of 2022 and your plate is in the mail we haven't been giving out plates tonight but huang da Sul gets don't worry our <laughs> butler is on top of it so that's going to wrap up our technical awards I really enjoyed that. That kind of nerdery is my favorite thing. Man, I really love the, the discussion you and I get to have about the nerdy shit. Writing, music, direction, production. That's the backbone of it for me. Throw good actors in there on top of that and you're hitting chef's kiss. But those four things, you can create magic. we've at this point we've started the industry discussion one of the things we wanted to talk about is where we think each of the individual countries industries are headed in the coming years and you clearly have some thoughts about gmm tv so what do you see happening with them in the coming year i think that gmm tv's learning curve has been exponential the kind of stuff that they were doing in 2017 18 19 Versus the kind of stuff that they're doing now, night and day. To go from SOTUS to Bad Buddy in, what, five, six years? Given the lead time of what it takes to produce a television drama. To go from SOTUS to Bad Buddy in that amount of time, they are learning I don't think SOTUS was bad, by the way. I don't think SOTUS was bad. Uh, it wasn't good. 
so mean. <laughs> I uh, have claws, yes. I do not like Sotos. It doesn't I understand. Feel... It's not just because of the subject matter either. I don't like Sotos because it feels unbalanced to me. I feel that like... That is fair. It is I a feel bit overstuffed. Like, yeah, I feel like one person really did a lot of the heavy lifting and the rest of the cast kind of weren't exactly sure that they wanted to be there. That is true as well. See, the thing is, I you can't understand, there was nothing in the era when Sodas came out. It was such a risk at the time. Yes, and I will give them credit for taking that risk and seeing what it could be and building from that moment of taking the leap to now where the leap has paid off for them in spades. We're talking about the future, not the past. Let me not get it. Let me not get into my, I've been in this shit since the beginning. (laughs) All my life I had to fight. Where do I see Tybiel going in general? So GMMTV is one thing. And I I guess when you're talking about Thai ecosystem, we sort of have to talk around the production companies because they're going in very different directions, but there's still a general direction of travel for the industry. The general direction of travel I'm seeing for the industry is higher concept stuff. I think they've they've sort of churned out for years and years and years these low concept university BLs, maybe a couple of office things, some high school, not as much high school as people have envisioned, but some high school. And now they're moving into higher concept stuff, not just genre. So not just sci-fi fantasy horror which i think they're starting to delve into but just concepts beyond we go to school together and sing songs and play sports ball so i feel like the industry is starting to tell more interesting stories i think they're streamlining so you're not gonna get along the lines of the pulps where you have four and five and six and seven couples they want to tell one story really well, maybe with one or two side couples along the way, but they want to streamline down to focus on one story. I really hope that told really, really is well. the thing because I think you're seeing some of the great stuff coming out of the pulps. Because one of the pulps I would focus on from this year, it's not going to win awards for a lot of different reasons, but my ride, the series, was absolutely spectacular. And really, only like. The main couple is spectacular. There are two side couples in my ride. And if I watch it again, I will fast forward through it. Because Mork and Tawan are just so fascinating to watch. Mork also has two gay uncles who are two of my favorite characters from the entire last year. And it leads to this great moment later in the show where the uncles are talking about what long-term devotion looks like about how love and all of these really erotic feelings, they tend to wane as you get older and mature and get used to being around people. But trust and commitment are the important things that hold the two of them together, even when they don't always like each other, which I think was such a, such a wonderful admission that sometimes in a long-term relationship, of any sort. You're not going to necessarily like the person. You're going to sometimes get frustrated with your friends. We all get frustrated with our parents from time to time. And it happens with your partner as well. 
One of the things I really hope to see with Thailand, as so many of the veteran actors who still work in the genre stick around, is they have to allow those boys to grow up, which is why I think we're seeing so many adult stories coming out of GMM TV. The primary issue that Thailand is going to face going forward is I Told Sunset About You got Korea's attention. And then Korea started genuinely producing BL. Even if it's all small-scale, basically, movie stuff, Korea is producing BL, and K-pop fans are entering the genre through the idols who are being cast in these BLs. And the bar for quality for K-pop fans is K-drama. And so the barely held together shoestring productions that Thailand used to get away with because it was only their domestic audience and their very accommodating international viewership is not going to hold when Korea is genuinely producing regular BL drops. And in response to Korea's re-entry into the genre, Japan has stepped up its output again and is genuinely producing content again. And with that in play, You've got some of the major reliable studios like GMMTV, Demundi, Star Hunter Entertainment, Wabi Sabi, and Idol Factory. Those are the ones who produce stuff with a little bit more reliable budget. There are others out there. I'm sorry if I didn't mention you. But these are... Me Mind Why in particular. I think we need to talk Me about Mind Why. Mind Why. You know, we should talk about what Mame is doing because she's a great example of where Thailand needs to go next. Because... The one thing Japan and Korea will not do is they will not explore high heat at all. They will not interrogate the interior aspects of a sexual relationship in their work. I mean, are you sure they're remaking Why Are You in Korea? Oh, man. You've been sitting (laughs) on that for like an hour and a half. I've been waiting for 90 minutes to throw that in there. <laughs> I'm not allowing I'm not allowing you to derail my excellent point with why go are ahead, you Korea? Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, your so point your Mame, point is valid. Mame is Mame. All right, let's talk about Mame, because I know she's a controversial figure. I like Mame. I don't always like her work, and I don't watch all of her shows. But I really, really like the niche that she fills in BL because her work is so specific. You have to accept some of the kink aspects of her work. And I think you have to accept the complex survivorship of her work if you're going to properly engage with it. And as a result, you have a writer who has such a very distinct view about the role of sex as it pertains to romantic intimacy with people. And I feel like that's the genuine space that Thailand can explore. Like, because Korea likes clean romance and Japan wants BL to be friendly. And so it's going to be clean. Like when Japan does high heat, it's usually done in their darker, more emotionally complicated and not always positive storytelling. And this is where I think Thailand, because there's because they don't always do dark that well, is why they they are the the ones who can actually do heat with any justice. Them and the Philippines, but the Philippines is kind of in all over so, the place because of the, the the nascent nature of their film industry and the complexities with their political situation. 
So we're we're talking about high heat in Thailand, and I agree with you, by the way, that when it comes to high heat, give or take of Philippines, which has its own problems with production right now, Thailand is going to be where it's at. I did note earlier this year when I was watching Kin Porsche and Cutie Pie at the same time, Love in the Air came out later in the year, but I was watching Kin Porsche and Cutie Pie at the same time, and I did write a little bit about how both stories were utilizing sex to tell the stories that they were in. And they were doing it in sort of two different ways. And when you add in something like Love in the Air, I think there are three different directions that these high heat stories are taking. And Secret Crush on You. Secret Crush on You as well, and Gap to some extent, because I've been very interested in watching how they navigate female sexuality in Gap. We've got the lane of Kin Porsche, which is what I called explicit but not gratuitous. That's a good description for it, I think. You're getting very high heat, excellent chemistry in a way that ties into the story. And I think that's a little bit of an outgrowth from MAME, actually, except MAME is also adding into it. And somebody brought this up on Tumblr, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it as well, that MAME's writing, she writes like somebody who's working through something. And that has made me sort of rethink the way that I engage with Mame's work and what I think of it and how I view it, just thinking about it from that angle. So Ken Porsche is one direction. Mame's stuff is another direction. So that's Love in the Air showed us another direction where maybe the story around the relationships isn't as good as it was in Ken Porsche, but the relationships are solid and they're sexual. And then we've got Cutie Pie where as much as I enjoyed certain aspects of Cutie Pie, I think that in Cutie Pie, the sex was gratuitous. It felt gratuitous. I got bored with it after a while. It started to feel a bit porny. And uh, I mean, what did you call him? Like a bodice ripper? Yeah, so my the way that I the way that I see Cutie Pie and sort of everything coming out of Domundi because I've been watching the trailers, all this high heat stuff coming out of Domundi. Domundi feels like it wants to film high quality Thai Regency romances, mm-hmm. bodice rippers. If you've read the Bridgerton books, you understand what Domundi is trying to do. You can actually see the tacit acknowledgement about where Thailand needs to go because GMMTV isn't really like a leader in this category. They're no, really they're more not. like the validator because they're the last mover. The fact that GMMTV is allowing JoJo to make only friends in the coming year I is the strongest so example. I am so interested in how that is going to turn out. Of where Thailand, I think, recognizes. They need to fit in this. And it's interesting, too, that they're also starting to play with their own level of office romance in this, acknowledging that they can't do certain things anymore. Which is why, like, ending ending slash beginning the year with My School President is such a an interesting choice from GMMTV, because Off was correct when he talked about this in the pre-show, that despite how people may feel about it, GMMTV does not do high school that often. So... I really like them doing a really light high school show before we get a very interesting year of adult romantic storytelling. Yeah, it's so strange. GMMTV's 
all across the map because you do get the sense that they're leaning into their rom-com bona fides because they whatever you think about together it was massive and they did do that and then bad buddy enchanté to an extent even though i didn't quite enjoy it because new like messes up everything she touches what they tried to do with fish upon the sky that didn't work because new like messes up everything she touches and uh, also because jitty rain there are no jitty rain books set to be adapted by gmm tv in the coming year and i find that very interesting so i think the most interesting thing that gmm tv is doing right now is developing original concepts and of course, Jojo leading the charge with Never Let Me Go. I have so many thoughts about all the things that Jojo chooses to be and why I love him with all of my heart. If I had to say who is the lodestar for GMMTV BL, I would have to give it to Jojo because they allow him to put their most experimental content out there. And then the rest of the company follows him. And it's interesting that he does it outside of BL. Like he did it with Free Will Be Free and he's doing it right now with the Warp Effect. The Warp Effect. And he did it to a little bit of an extent with Mama Gogo. They're allowing Jojo to be their Lord Star. And I think that's a good thing because Jojo is leading in a way and not even Alf is leading. Alf is leading in certain kinds of directions when it comes to romantic drama for example i think that there are things that alf wants to do inside of romantic drama that we saw starting with tale of a thousand stars that was one idea that he explored and then it seems now like alf's biggest thing Chicken. right now is making sure that the queer stories that are being told have a very clear vision and a solid plan for execution which is not always something that thailand does really well Yes, professionalizing things. Because he's, I think he's now their content director or something like that. He seems to be, Basically. he seems to be pretty in charge of BL and some, even some of the head series. To I mean, he's extent. talked about it. He's basically in charge of GMMTV's queer friendly efforts. Yeah, and he's very specific about what is getting put on screen. If you looked at last year's production, um, borderless versus this year's production of what is it is this year borderless i can't remember diversity something like that i can't remember but if you look at the direction of travel in terms of what's being tried out what is being nailed down gmmtv took a leap last year they planned for eight queer series and they're roughly separated half and half into romantic comedies and romantic dramas. Roughly. More or less. This year they're doing the same. But the quality of the stories that they're choosing and who they're deciding to work with and where they're distributing. They're testing the waters on a number of different things. And because they're the heavy hitter. In terms of volume, nobody else is doing the volume that GMMTV is doing in BL. They're adapting a Japanese product with Cherry Magic. They're still sorting out some stuff there. That is an interesting experiment. I want to see how it works out. My first reaction was no. My first reaction was why? Well, the why was obvious. 
So, like, Not honestly, the cherry magic, the cherry magic play is actually super clever because GMMTV does not lead; they follow. One of the consistent refrains about the Thai adaptation of Love Stage is that it's actually good, that it's better than the Japanese live action adaptation, and holds its own against the Japanese anime adaptation, which is very high praise done this on the head side when they did baker boys and not just baker boys f4 as well they've remade a property that's been made in japan korea boys over flowers is originally from china what was the thing called it was meteor garden i think yes there you go there there are some stories that are working their way through yeah but i feel like this is a big swing from gmmtv they're saying we will take one of the most popular international bl stories and we will do our version of it and i feel like that's a huge swing for them and i'm actually really excited because it's such a huge swing because they are opening themselves up to intense scrutiny and i feel like that's really fascinating i am one of the people scrutinizing them intensely because speaking of adaptations in other countries let's Mm -hmm. finally talk about korean (sighs) why is this happening I don't know. Here's the thing. Like, I love Jimmy and Tommy, and I really loved what Saint and Z did together. But here's the thing. Saint and Z went on to become leaders in different organizations. And then Tommy and Jimmy are on an extended personal hiatus dealing with some of their own personal stuff. And the biggest thing with YRU was how enormously sexual it was particularly because they couldn't film a bunch of stuff because of covid so the whole project got derailed to all hell i don't know what korea expects to do with that concept are they going to lean into the sort of fantastical elements exclusively i don't want to watch a chaste version of why are you Aside from all the myriad side couples that I fast forwarded all the way through when I watched Why Are You? There were three main stories. There's the whole overall conceit, whatever's happening with the Y novel coming to life thing. There is Fighter and Tutor, and there is Cypher and Zone. I can see Korea doing the Y novel come to life thing. I think Korea could probably do the magical realism part really well. I could see them doing the Cypher Zone story well because the Cypher Zone story definitely suffered from the COVID shutdowns and everything else that went on with the production. And I can see, because of what the Cypher Zone story is, I can see Korea adapting that story pretty well and ironing out the kinks with it. But the Fighter Tutor story, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't think Korea can do that. And if they can't do it justice, then I would rather they not do it at all. That's the thing, like, Korea is going to kill it in the coming year if the new employee and the director buys me dinner are any indication. If they stick to office romance and some of the other sort of bread and butter romantic stuff, it's going to be so easy to watch. Because the thing that Thailand got wrong about some of these smaller concepts is they shouldn't be expand it out to 50 plus minutes some of these really simple stories should just be executed really well in about 20 minutes per week and i don't think thailand can compete with korea's excellence in those categories 
I just have a big question mark over the whole why are you thing. I understand from a money perspective why it's being made. Damundi has made these links with Korean BL and there's been sort of a back and forth. So they did Peach of Time in Korea. And then Tutor and Yim, I think, are in Korea now working on something, a Korean production. Are they speaking Korean? I have no idea what's happening there. I am not particularly interested in the <laughs> Thai in the Thai Korean productions. I understand the money. I don't understand the creative side of it. I am most excited for Japan for the next year because I have no idea what the hell is going to happen. Because none of us predicted the year we've had out of Japan, and I'm so excited for what might happen next year. If Japan wants to throw me something, great, but I'm not really looking for it. Korea, there are some things that I'll be looking for. Korean historical drama is where it's at. And if they can pull off a good Korean (laughs) historical BL, so not tinted with you, not the cross-dressing one. Nobleman Ryu's Wedding? Yes, Nobleman Ryu's Wedding. Okay, I actually like that a lot. I don't. Now that MBS committed to a year of BL and has started using some of their idol talent in BL, what does Japan do next? Because that feels like a response to Korea. And I'm very curious what Japan does now that they're having to respond to the international acclaim that some of their peer nations in their region are getting. I don't know. I feel like culturally and politically... Japan is in a strange moment and uh, they might be feeling some type of way about allowing the crown to be taken from them and fighting to get it back in one way. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that they care enough. This year they put some stuff out and from what you're saying, it's some good stuff and they put out quite a bit of it. This year felt intentional. I don't know necessarily that they're so intentional about BL anymore. I don't know. know. That's why I'm so fascinated by it. I'm so excited for what I don't even know is coming. It's also so insular and so behind a screen that you don't really know what's happening in Japanese BL until maybe a week before a show airs, you'll find out that there's a show coming out. Japan is supremely disinterested with what we think about their productions. They make Japanese productions for Japanese people. They do, but there has been... There feels like a tacit acknowledgement about the rest of the world happening with some of the productions from this year that I can feel. That I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. It's really hard to talk about Taiwan because they're so small. But I do think that the little they produce tends to just be so fascinating. I suspect we'll probably get probably three to six shows from them next year. But I really hope some of the concepts the high concept stuff they've been playing around with carries through into next year because it's been so fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about queerness in BL. Because I think Taiwan is the leader on this all the time. Like, look at the, look at the last year they did Papa and daddy too. A lot of people didn't like it. I liked it. You all are wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's very mean. I understand. No, I understand well, the difficulties. I understand the difficulties that people had with Papa and Daddy, but we have to interrogate what being 
in long-term queer relationships is going to look like. Like we we fought to gloat over 131 BL productions produced in the last year. But what happens after that? Like we have to think about that. When do we get the BL sitcoms? When do we get like the reboot of that 70s show, that 90s show on Netflix about a gay couple that's been together for 50 years, pissed that their grandkids are now living in the house too? When it comes to BL that feels specifically queer, I don't think of Taiwan. I think of the Philippines. And oh, maybe okay, that's yeah. just maybe that's just because as a Western viewer, the Philippines is an easier entry point. Sure, because they spent the last four hundred years under Spanish and then American rule. I mean, colonized people, what's up? <laughs> but we all know how to make paella. We just call it different things. Exactly. Here, here it's pillow. You've got jambalaya. We call it jambalaya. <laughs> we all I make have some one frozen pot. in my fridge right now. <laughs> we all make one pot rice dishes. That's how you know you're That's a right. colonized. That's, That's right. how you know you're from a colonized culture. The Philippines feels the most consistently queer in my understanding of queerness. And again, I have to lead with the disclaimer that I am not a queer person. So my understanding of queerness comes from experience adjacent to queerness through friends and family and not being queer myself. So, of course, I'm going to have a very different perspective on this. And Ben can speak more no, uh, I clearly. Think you're correct and... In, I think you're correct in that regard. It's just it's hard to talk about the Philippines. For me right now, because I'm out of touch with what's happening there, because I I get a lot of YouTube recommendations for Filipino BL dramas that are being released. But unfortunately, I am also affected by the Korean and Japanese reentry into genre. And so the indie level of the a lot of the a lot of the current Filipino productions hasn't really held my attention with the volume that I'm trying to watch right now. And that's really unfortunate because I feel myself only waiting for anima studios or the idea first company stuff to reach me. And I'm becoming, I've reached the point where if it's not going to get streamed at me aggressively on YouTube or on Vicky or Gaga, maybe I I'm having a difficult time keeping up with, YouTube web dramas because there's just too much else to watch. And so I'm out of touch with what Filipino BL is doing right now because Idea First Company stuff is locked behind region locks because the Japanese apparently really love what they do. And Anima Studios is on a weird hiatus figuring out some stuff. So no, we have to tell the people, I think, because I'm not sure if everybody knows. So Anima Studios has subsumed Globe Studios, and Globe Studios made Gaia Pelicula. In this past year for the Philippines, I, I watched Game Boys 2, Rainbow Prince, and Sleep With Me. All of which I really loved, particularly Sleep With Me. And it's tough, because while I'm totally with you about the inherent queerness of the way they tell their stories... I just get a much more reliable set of production stuff out of Taiwan. And Taiwan in particular is super focused on adults right now. I think also in terms of explorations of queerness in BL, in the Philippines, it's very in your face. In Taiwan, it feels comfortable and settled. In Thailand, it feels like they're still navigating 
queerness and they're trying to figure out how to navigate it for their society. Japan sometimes uses the word gay. Korea never uses the word gay, never uses the word trans, never uses the word Japan queer. is so fascinating. It really depends on the production. Like, I don't think MBS really cared about the specificity of queerness per se. Like they, like they acknowledge that there is a queer thing going on. They didn't necessarily put their characters in the bubble, but they didn't always care about it. But Minato's laundromat was explicitly about internalized homophobia. Eternal Yesterday was about, was about queer relationships explicitly. And Old Fashioned Cupcake is also about queerness. Japan's issues with homophobia are different from the West because the Japanese culture's primary gripe with queerness has to do with the way it disrupts order, not necessarily about some of the complex. Like, I don't, I don't know really how to distinguish this properly. So, if we're looking at it on sort of the identity society axis, the Japanese are not dealing so much with ideas of identity, but ideas of society. Yes, that's a good that's a good way to distinguish the point at which they're coming from. Yeah. It's the individuality that's more of an issue than the specificity of queerness. We'll talk about more of this stuff in the future, I think, probably in the spring. Mm-hmm. But this is the kind of stuff we we think about when we're talking about all the the things happening on the production side is what does, what does all of this output mean? And what happens when some of the money starts to dry up? Cause we're, we're looking at the next big phase of this, which is going to be consolidation. We're going to see a couple of producers survive this and really thrive. And some of the smaller ones are going to fall by the wayside as they get lost in the noise of how wide the genre is becoming. Some things are re- already falling by the wayside. TV Thunder started out 22 with a bang and have disappeared. Copy A Bangkok, I think, only put out War of Why. Me Mind Why did Love in the Air, but I think Me Mind Why is on the Ascendant, not the other way around. D-Hop, pretty stable, one or two shows a year. Damundi obviously pushing to be on the rise. We don't know yet what's happening with Beyond Cloud, but it feels like they're ramping up to be something. Idol Factory feels the same. GMM is definitely ramping up. Like TV Thunder feels like it's it's done. I feel like you can feel it happening with the international fans right now. Like the annoyances that we've had with trying to access content that is being produced on Eyes Play is moving some of those shows into irrelevance internationally. And then the issues we're having with WeTV, with what shows are available, when are they not available, when can we watch them, when can we not watch them, is pushing some of their shows, which have always been a little bit middle of the road for a lot of us, into irrelevance. And that's one of my concerns for Fluke Not Touch, that he's mostly worked with WeTV or Eyes Play. But people just aren't going to see Fluke anymore because people... Because people have so much pushed to them on YouTube, Vicky, and for those who join for Ken Porsche, Aichi, less so on Gaga, I feel like the Wii TV and Ice Play 
distribution platforms are on the decline in terms of international mindshare? I think that the industry is still looking for the replacement for Line TV and ICE seems to be moving forward, moving up when it comes to being a replacement for Line TV. Whereas some of the other platforms, specifically WeTV feels, you're right, WeTV feels like it's toast. Iceplay, it feels like maybe it's still doing numbers within the geographical uh, market, but internationally, it's too hard. Disney Plus Hotstar, Disney's making a determined play for some of the bigger names, but it's coming with its own problems for international fans. What else is there? View? Doesn't seem like much is happening there. Um, and that's kind of where we are. I mean, there's a lot to look forward to for next year. Like, don't, don't, that's, I don't want us to end on like the, the decline of some of these platforms to. No. Well, be again, thing. It's, that, it's that consolidation thing. There's been a lot of market segmentation happening, particularly in TIBL. And we're, we're always going to be a bit Thai heavy just because of the volume that's coming out of Thailand. So that's what she loves. Yes. <laughs> Even though this I do not watch show, these be, things in volume. It would be JBL and Taiwanese BL only. Don't tell I'm lies. Okay. I'm just kidding. I'm just yeah, kidding. Um, I couldn't even, I it, couldn't even it, say that with a straight face, y'all. I'm I kidding. was about to say, <laughs> you can't be watching my school president and saying something like that to me at the same time. It's, uh, oh just, my not, God. it's just not realistic. Oh my God. There is a consolidation coming. You are correct both on the production side and on the distribution side, because things have just gotten too wide. Things are starting to fall into the cracks and get lost. We actually saw that with JMM TV. Off talked about how the editing booth is difficult to get into at JMM TV right now. A lot of the stuff I've realized is filmed already. People just can't get into the edit suites. So they're, I think they've started almost completed filming Be My Favorite, which we didn't even talk about because I don't think either of us is particularly interested in it. But there seems to be an issue with them getting <laughs> editing time to actually put the show together. There were, as we pointed out, that we were aware of 131 BL productions in 2022. That's a lot. That it's is impossible. A lot. Like I watched a lot and only managed to start a complete 79. Yeah, that is that is a lot of content coming at shows. you. Coming at <laughs> that is a lot of content coming at a relatively small market. There is gonna be a lot of stuff that falls into the cracks. This is probably why I end up watching so little because I I could easily see myself becoming overwhelmed if I try to keep up with more than I do. There is a consolidation coming, if only because of the money. There just isn't enough money to go around. And when a consolidation happens, some good things fall away, like Nadal Bangkok. But also some of the weaker stuff is going to fall away as well. So that's going to be our industry discussion. Thank you very much for sitting and listening to us. It's our final part of our wrap-up we continue the Vibe Awards 
with our best in class series and our discussion on our special class programs. We're going to talk about best GL, best BL per country, the best show that had good ideas, but just didn't really work. And then we're going to talk about two shows that we thought were really special, but didn't necessarily fit into the confines of QL. Look out for that. In the meantime, we out. Say bye to the people, Ben. Peace. Peace.